Welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we are delighted and honored to have as our guest, Christine Azar, who is a director of Burford Capital. And we will be talking about one of the most important subjects in modern law practice, litigation finance. Burford Capital is the leading company in the area of of, of litigation finance. It's publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange and the London Stock Exchange. It has a $4 billion investment portfolio and a highly experienced team of over 130 professionals, including 60 lawyers who help it work its practice. Ms. Azar is the director at Burford with responsibility for building business within U.S.-based law firms and companies. She's focused on originating business, but also, and very importantly, uh, she is a champion for women in the legal industry and has taken on a significant role in promoting and champ- championing Burford's equity project initiative aimed at closing the gender gap at law. Prior to joining Burford Capital, she had a distinguished career as a litigator at private law firms. Ms. Cesar, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Howard. Glad to be here. Many people may not be familiar with litigation finance, so let's start with the basic model so people understand how it works in a simple case. Suppose a company is considering a client, usually a company, considering bringing a plaintiff's action and is concerned about the cost and the valuation. What does Burford Capital do? What are the options in litigation finance? If you were consulted either by counsel for the company or by the company itself through its general counsel, what, how does that then work if, if you go ahead with the litigation finance? Sure. So, Legal finance, as we call it, um, is also known as litigation finance, litigation funding. You might have heard third-party funding. You know, it very simply is the use of the value of an asset here, one or more litigation claims, as collateral to obtain capital. And really what you're talking about at its core is risk allegation. We all know litigation is inherently very risky, and by using some sort of outside capital, a company or a law firm can offset some or all of that risk. And probably the most important attribute um, of capital that comes from an outside provider is that it's provided on a non-recourse basis. And that means if the case is not successful, you don't owe us our money back and we get no return on it at all. And so that's what I mean by by offsetting the risk of the litigation. Um, And this is a little bit different than than if you took a bank loan or a line of credit or the like, where you're going to have to repay that money whether the case is successful or not. Um, And so we really kind of operate in tandem with that kind of corporate debt on the loan side or law firm lines of credit in a complementary way. So you asked about kind of some of what are the potential funding arrangements. I I mean, I think the simplest and what most people think of when they think of litigation funding is that single case client side deal. And that's where there's, you know, a single case and a funder like Burford will pay the legal fees and the out-of-pocket expenses for that case. Um, for some sort of pre-negotiated return upon the successful resolution of the case. Um, and the way that's structured really varies based on the needs of the client and you know, how much of the risk they're looking to offload. We can pay all of the legal fees and all of the out-of-pocket expenses, um, or we can pay some portion of, of one or both of those. Um, I think it's worth noting we do like the law firms involved to have some skin in the game and to share in the risk, even if it's only minimally. 
Um, and that way the incentives really remain aligned throughout the case. Um, and what that means is that we're usually not going to pay full rack rate uh, on what a firm normally charges on an hourly basis. Uh, but if the case is successful, then, you know, the law firm can, can also share in the upside of that successful resolution of the case. Very important, um, very important with what you've said, if, if I may. I just want to emphasize as you go on, one, because people are not, many people are not really familiar with this, so that a critical distinction which you said and which I think has to be emphasized in terms of firms looking for finance for litigation, for example, is that this is non-recourse, and, and many people may know that phrase in other contexts, but what it means is no personal liability in terms of paying back what the funding has been. The security for the funding is the result of the case, what is recovered in the case. If there has been a misjudgment of some sort made or something unexpected has happened and we all know litigation has risks and nothing is recovered neither the lawyer nor the client owes anything to the funder and that non-recourse aspect of this kind of funding I think is critical to understanding its value to the legal profession because as you said when you talked about lawyers should have skin in the game the client now has confidence which we'll talk about a great deal more later but the client has con confidence that an independent third party with great expertise has also evaluated the claim and believes in it enough to itself have skin in the game by making the investment. So I wanted to emphasize that non-recourse feature as, as well as the assessment of risk because that concept, it seems to me, if you agree, is central to why litigation financing arose and to its success. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely correct, and and I'm certainly glad that you emphasize that. And that goes to you know, as I called it, sort of risk allocation. You're really moving the risk to someone else in in a particular matter or multiple matters, um, and that leads directly into um, what I was going to talk about as far as what does our return structure look like? A lot of people ask us, you know, well, what's it going to cost? They're used to sort of the bank loan, you know, X percentage. Um, per year, and that's not really the way we structure deals. I mean, typically, when there is successful recovery, we are going to get you know, the amount that we invested in initially back, and then we're going to get either some sort of you know, a preferred multiple to our investment um, that is usually a multiple that rises over time, given the time value of money, or we get some percentage of the ultimate recovery in the case, and usually it ends up being some sort of hybrid of those two things. Um, and, and frankly, given our size, a lot of our deals get, get very, very complicated, and there's sort of intricate waterfalls of who's getting what from the proceeds as they come in over time. Um, and, you know, it, it, if you really think about it, it's all going to be based on um, the risk of a particular matter or matters. Um, we look at things like what type of case it is, you know, what are the merits of the claims, what are the damages, what jurisdiction is it in, who is the judge that it's in front of, are there enforcement risks? how long do we think it's going to go, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and really in the single case financing, there's that win-loss binary risk that we have to consider. Um, I think one thing people find interesting you know, that aren't familiar with what we do is that we can come in at any stage of the litigation. Sometimes we come in before a case is even on file. Um, sometimes we come in when a case is on appeal and there's a, you know, a litigation fatigue going on on paying the bills. Um, obviously, that directly affects the risk metric that defines what the pricing is. Obviously, a case that's on appeal with a successful judgment down below is much less risky than a case that hasn't yet been filed. Um, so that was sort of an overview of what a single case financing looks like. But really, 
the industry and Burford have moved well beyond that. Pardon me for interrupting, but I, I just want to, we are going to move on. But I, again, I think what you've said about the nature of, of the return on the funding, it seems to me has, has, has an aspect and an impact that is also vitally critical to understand. Because it seems to me that the structure places a premium on efficiency because the, the efficiency results in the lower amount of funds that have to be invested in the matter, it results in the client uh, and getting a higher return. And so for everyone involved, not only is this the independent third party making an assessment backed up by the risk of its own investment, but it's structured so that efficiency is rewarded for those who are taking the non-recourse loan, the client and, and the attorney. So it's a structure that brings in third-party evaluation and also rewards efficiency, uh, which I think, uh, as I understand, it, it does reward efficiency, is a very important part of, 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 of the value of the litigation, of, of the legal financing. So I completely agree with that. With one caveat, uh, and this is an important point, it does reward efficiency where efficiency is going to get you to the best result. What it can also do is provide the resources to really go long if you have to. And what we see sometimes is without outside capital, you know, a, a plaintiff may feel the need to settle a case prematurely because they simply don't have the resources to take it long all the way through trial and appeal if they have to. And so efficiency is certainly rewarded, um, but it also gives that potential um, to really take the case all the way through if that's what it takes to get the best results. No, I think that's a very important qualification to what I said. It, it, it rewards efficiency when things can be efficient. But again, we all know that tactically in litigation, having the resources to do what's necessary is a critical part of this. So while it rewards efficiency in one situation, in another, it may it, it does also provide the resources to handle a matter as it should be handled. And you were going to go on and I went, uh, before I asked the last question and talk about other issues beyond the individual case and the individual case financing. W what are those uh, uh, aspects? It's actually just sort of a, the logical extension of the single case in what we call portfolio financing. And I mean, that really is what it sounds like it is. It's the same type of structure providing capital, but it's against a pool of cases and multiple cases um, that are either you know already been filed or will be filed. And and then the return can be negotiated against the outcome on those multiple cases. Um, and again, this is still all on a non-recourse basis, but what can be very attractive about portfolio financing is it really looks more like a capital facility with those cases securing um, the money and the, the investment as collateral, and that money can really be used for anything. Um, it doesn't have to be directly used for the fees and expenses of one particular case. And this means it can be used you know, for, for hiring more people or infrastructure or whatever a company may have a need for. And so that can be, that can be very attractive. Um, if you have a portfolio, those cases can be, you know, related to one another, unrelated. Obviously, the more diverse the portfolio is, the lower risk it is to both you know, the litigant and to the outside capital provider. And so it can make the pricing a little more attractive for everybody when you're in a portfolio arrangement as well. Once again, that is on a non-recourse basis. Even the portfolio financing is done on a, on a non-recourse basis. Yeah. Quickly, a couple more areas where I think people really are unaware of some of the things that we can do, um, one of which is what we call a monetization. And that's actually accelerating a portion of a 
claim on behalf of a company. So if they have a very large claim that they're litigating, we can accelerate a portion of that claim. And what that's doing is taking the risk of zero recovery off the table because, again, it's all on a non-recourse basis. Um, but they keep the future upside because we're only accelerating a portion of that. Um, and, and, and we can also do something like that for law firms where we're really accelerating future fees on you know, contingency fee cases or cases that are settled um, but not yet finalized. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that that is something that we do. And, and frankly, we're doing more and more of it. Um, and this is, you know, we're sitting here at, on the, the 10th of December. Something else that we do for law firms is we can monetize their receivables. And we see that a lot at year end where receivables that are due in, in the first quarter of 2021 can be accelerated into 2020. And obviously that can be very attractive at, at year end, you know, although we can do that at any time of year. Um, and really, I mean, we just, we have so many different creative ways that we can help people. And that's really what we try to do is, is talk to the clients, understand what their needs are, and you know, craft some sort of solution. Well, let's talk about, I mean, we're now talking about a time when litigation, legal financing, litigation financing is flourishing. But let's go somewhat into the history. When did all this begin? Because historically, of course, when, it, when, when things like this have started, whether they be contingency fees or, or, or loans on lawsuits, there were all doctrines of champerty and maintenance. There was great suspicion of people other than the clients being able to, uh, to pay fees on a regular basis. There are still complexities in the United Kingdom uh, on, on, on doing these things. So I think it is different there whether you loan to the client or, or, or to the lawyer. But how did all this, this is now flourishing but there's a time when it was fairly controversial. How, how did it begin? When did litigation financing in a significant way begin and why? And what has led to its growth? Sure. So historically, litigation funding uh, began in Australia um, and then in the UK and has been around for a couple of decades there. Um, and this is usually where we see jurisdictions that don't have contingency fees. Um, in the U.S., where we really saw this get traction, uh, within the last decade or so, largely after the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is pretty logical. You know, companies were facing huge cuts in, in costs, um, but at the same time, there was an uptick in litigation, uh, and they were sort of left with two choices. They either forego the litigation because they didn't have the money to pay for it, or they find counsel who will take it on contingency. Um, and, and that's great, and law firms you know, sometimes like to take cases on contingency, but in that time, with a huge um, pressure from companies to take cases on contingency, law firms are really getting kind of pushed out of their comfort zone on their risk profile. Um, and if they take a case on contingency, they're not getting those hourly you know, billable cash flow that comes in. Um, and so there was really sort of this gap there that we saw. Uh, and what you saw was some you know, innovative companies like Burford, who was started in 2009, trying to find a way to bridge that gap. Um, and sort of sharing the risk with the parties and the law firm so that, you know, a law firm's not taking all the risk on contingency. The company's not putting all that money, you know, out the door, you know, in, in cash. Um, and, and the growth has been absolutely exponential. In the 11 years we've been around, we'll talk more about the research report that we do on an annual basis, but it shows that legal finance has grown by 105% in just the last three years. Um, yeah. and, and we'll talk about some of the, you know, the, the peace of mind issues a, a bit later. Um, 
But the whole, you know, the champerty, the maintenance, all those things are pretty much falling by the wayside. Um, you do have to kind of, you know, check your jurisdiction. Things are on a state-by-state basis. Um, but the hesitancy and sort of the controversy um, has largely, you know, gone away for the most part, um, and it's really becoming sort of a main street part of the, of the legal industry. It very much is, and I do want to pause again for a moment. You talked about the relationship and pressures on contingency financing in the United States, because, you know, there really, there are a range of cases done by contingency. The classic contingency case really was in, was in tortious injury, auto accidents and other kinds of, 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 of tortious injuries. And then as, as we saw what happened is it became much more difficult when, when people who were used to doing contingent cases thought, let's expand and we'll move out of the regular sort of contingency, consumer contingency in other cases, and try to do very expensive with high reward commercial cases and started firms started taking cases on contingency and intellectual property, antitrust and other cases. And that's one of the reasons that contingency patent litigation is called the sport of kings, because the risks are so high for the contingency lawyers. So the opening, it seems to me that the pressure, the need here came less from the more traditional, although there's a fair amount of litigation financing in the more traditional contingency areas, but it's the high value, high risk cases that the firms were simply not used to dealing with that really has contributed in those kind of cases to people taking a new look uh, and engaging the litigation finance. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true and, and a very important distinction that you've made between you know, what Burford is, which is a commercial funder versus um, for the other part of the industry, which is what is called consumer funding. And, and that's where really a funder is giving usually a small amount of money to an individual plaintiff um, to kind of get them through until their case is resolved. You see that in personal injury and mass tort and medical malpractice and the like. Um, and, and that's in many ways very different. Um, and I, I can't really speak to that industry. So um, in the commercial side of things, yes, we are talking about you know, very large contract matters, fraud, patent, international arbitrations, you know, disputes and insolvency context and the like. Um, and just to give you some sense of, of the industry, we can't quantify exactly how much, you know, legal finance is out there, um, but based on available public information, commercial legal finance companies have cumulatively raised about $16.2 billion. Um, and if you think about it, the, the market for legal services in just the U.S., the U.K., and Australia uh, is over $350 billion, um, some of which obviously are commercial matters that could be financed. And so but can I ask you, pardon me for interrupting, I just want to clarify the 350. Sure. Is that for all legal services, including things like transactions and estate planning, or is that simply that the litigation? Okay. Yep. So that's, that is all legal services. And, and again, this is sort of best we can tell based on public information. Um, but that's still a pretty huge delta between kind of the available capital that has been raised and, you know, the amount of money that, that is being spent on the legal industry. So, so there's still room for significant growth. Um, in the industry, and I think you know, we will continue to see that. And of course, uh, you know, we talk about, we mentioned the history of the of, of the champerty and maintenance, uh, but what uh, litigation finance uh, has added to the discussion is the other side of the decades of the centuries, uh, when people could only engage lawyers if they paid out of their own pocket, uh, was that it's true that third parties didn't get involved 
but I think anyone who is in this area knows it is also true that there are there were a great many uh, companies and clients who had meritorious claims who could not bring them because they simply didn't have the resources to uh, to go forward. And so that's the other side of historic restrictions on this kind of finance. Uh, fees and expenses only came from clients, but there were a lot of people who couldn't afford them and therefore uh, their claims never found their way to court. So that explains, I think, in terms of, of fairness and access to justice and other things, uh, why this may have come forward once it started. Suddenly people with meritorious claims, and not just individuals, but really companies, given the cost of litigation, uh, now find themselves able to consider those claims, as you call it in your literature, an asset class, uh, but more important when the claims are meritorious, to now be able to go forward where in the past they might not have been able to go forward at all for the lack of resources. Uh, and I think that's an important perspective in talking about the policy issues involved here uh, in, in, in terms of dealing with those issues. So tell us more about Burford. You've talked about the industry generally and a bit about Burford. Uh, a little more so we know about Burford. When did it begin? Uh, how has it grown? Where is it now? Sure. So you, you touched on some of this in, in your intro. But Burford was started in 2009, directly out of the aftermath of the financial crisis. And, you know, I, I've been with Burford for, for a few years now, but we hear kind of the people that started it 11 years ago. And it was you know, a handful of people working on laptops and trying to do something in an industry that most lawyers had never heard of at the time. Um, and, and so it's interesting now to see, as you say, we have a fully $2 billion portfolio. Uh, we have offices around the globe. Uh, we work with Fortune 500 companies, AMLA 100 law firms. We've got over 60 uh, lawyers on the team, along with finance professionals. Um, and to give you some sense of the scale, in 2019, we committed around $1.6 billion in new capital uh, and deployed about a billion dollars. Um, our average funding size is more than $10 million, um, and we've done capital facilities of over $100 million. Uh, so. It really is just amazing the growth that we've seen. Um, as you touched on, we're publicly traded on both the London and the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and the real advantage to that is it gives us immediate access to permanent capital, um, unlike some, you know, some of the competition, which are private funds, and you know, kind of have to go out and raise the money uh, to fund the cases. Um, it also gives a level, level of transparency into you know, what it is that we do, our sources of capital, how we look at our investments and the like. And you know, I highly encourage people to to go on our website and, and check all of that out. Well, we've been talking about uh, legal financing generally. We've been talking about preferred capital, been talking about the demand uh, and what it brings to the marketplace, current litigation. We'll continue that discussion in a, in a lot of different contexts. But before we do, let's take a break, because those of you listening to this podcast can get MCLE credit, can get one hour MCLE credit, MCLE credit. Uh, for listening to the podcast. You can find out how uh, by listening to this break. We will now tell you in the break how you may work through the Daily Journal to obtain MCLA credit for listening to this podcast. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. 
Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We are now back from the break. Uh, I, I do want to ask you if I it can. I mean, we want to talk about how lawyers are responding now uh, and a range of issues. Uh, but I do want to accelerate something that, that because we've talked so much about growth, and I think it's in the context of that growth that this may be the time to talk about some of the concerns because I think our listeners familiar with with litigation finance have in the back of their minds been saying, when are they going to talk about uh, the criticisms that have been made or the issues that have been raised about this? So what I'd like to do, if I can, we know there have been a a group of issues raised, for example, around confidentiality of what happens in the cases when a litigation fund are involved, about control issues. Let's, before we move on in terms of the general growth and what's happening today, I think given everything we've talked about, this may be the time to just talk about those issues uh, in terms of, of what the answers are and how people are dealing with them. So let's talk first about the confidentiality issue. One of the criticisms that's been raised is, is there a risk of confidentiality because now the funder is involved in the, in, 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 in the lawsuit? So it's interesting because two of the issues you raise, confidentiality and control, pretty much go hand in hand. Um, so the, the justification for saying, oh, it should be disclosed if there's a litigation funder involved, is that it would you know, unearth any control issues that are in conflict with the best interest of the client. Um, and so this is a good point at which to kind of step back and talk about control first. And I think it's incredibly important to understand when a funder comes into a particular case or cases, um, they have absolutely no control over the litigation. Um, they don't tell lawyers how to run their cases. They don't tell clients Know, what they should settle for or when they should settle, they are really a passive provider of capital. Um, and so generally speaking, um, you know, where you've got that situation, you don't really have any reason to justify you know, a blanket you must disclose and it becomes not confidential anytime a funder is involved. Um, and, and, and I mean, this makes sense. Plaintiffs have always had access to all kinds of outside capital, whether it's traditional bank lending or you know, a family member or crowdfunding or whatever it might be. And so, you know, taking outside capital in the context of legal finance really isn't any different. In fact, it's really not that much different than a firm being on contingency. I think disclosure of whether there's litigation financing is an absolutely mm-hmm. critical issue to discuss. And you're right to have moved on to that. But again, I think there's a the point of emphasis in terms of how people view this and what they're dealing with uh, to again come back and simply emphasize that, which is the issues of confidentiality and control. That the litigation funder, basically you make a, a due diligence on counsel involved and on the cases, the way any investor does due diligence, uh, the way people buy passive equity positions in publicly traded corporations. 
uh, and make other investments passively, but you, you make the decision on whether to make the, 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 the funding available on the results of your due diligence of counsel and the risks in the case. And what you're saying is that as a matter of practice law and, and all sorts of other things, there is no control. No one consults with you. The counsel doesn't consult with you about how the case should be settled, what the strategy ought to be. You are a passive investor, as you're describing it, uh, based upon the due diligence and the, and the judgments you've made about counsel in the case, and nothing more than that. Yeah, is I that a- think that's right. And, and to be to be clear, if counsel or client wants to ask what we think and, you know, is interested because we are experienced in many different cases and have done this a lot, we're happy to tell you what we think. You just are not required to accept that or we can't tell you what you must do. But it, we do like to be a resource for our clients um, and, and find that we frequently are and, and a welcome resource. When, when, when you're consulted then for advice, how do you deal with issues of, of confidentiality? Uh, if suppose it involves the consultation involves attorney work product or attorney client uh, uh, information, how do you deal with the confidentiality it's, issues there? So the the law has been very clear that um, both the details of the litigation funding agreement and communications between a funder and client are protected by the work product doctrine and the common common interest privilege, um, and that's really the, the case law on that is is pretty clear. Um, the few exceptions have been where best practices weren't filed, maybe an NDA wasn't signed or something like that. Um, and so, you know, we are able to have those those discussions. And, and obviously those discussions are, are important. And it operates much as if you were doing the same with an expert. If you had a financial expert, you would be able to talk with them um, and still have the information protected from, from disclosure in the litigation. And, and so, you know, we're quite comfortable um, and again, you know, always have to look at things jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But the, the courts that have decided to date have been pretty universally um, protective of that of that uh, work product doctrine. Um, and, and look, this makes total sense. If, if an address party could get into the specifics of that, they might know what the plaintiff's litigation budget is and deliberately try and run out that budget. Um, they might know what a funder thinks about the valuation of the case, and that could impact you know, settlement. Um, and so, you know, I think the courts recognize that and have been pretty protective of the information. Um, I think the important thing to note is make sure you have a funder who knows what they're doing and has the system in place to protect the information. It's like anything else, you can waive it. And so you need to make sure you've got, you know, a robust NDA um, and the technology to protect the information uh, to make sure that that, you know, that information stays confidential. Well, let's talk then about, I mean, we are now, you, you mentioned how the, so much of the growth of, of the industry came out of the 2008 financial crisis, uh, but we are now in another crisis that uh, is at least equal, perhaps, the full impacts are still being evaluated uh, because of COVID-19 and its impact. Uh, and, and you've done surveys about what lawyers are now looking for in this environment. What is happening in this environment, and what do your surveys show about lawyers' concerns and how lawyers and clients are planning? So we do this annual legal finance report, and it's interesting because this isn't the first year that we've done it. Um, And doing it year after year has really allowed us to get some insight into where the industry is and trends and the like. Um, But this survey this year was of particular interest because it was conducted over the summer, which means it was well into the impacts of COVID-19 and the downturn and all of that. So it really raised some interesting issues. Um, Just to give some background, this is a survey conducted by Ari Kaplan Advisors and GLG. 
Um, there were 499 online surveys and 29 tele telephone interviews that were conducted. Um, almost evenly split, about 53% were in-house counsel, about 47% were law firm um, partners. Um, and it was really focused on sort of leadership and more senior people at the firm um, to get some, some insight into the information. Um, and what we heard, you know, at a very high level is that, of course, everyone was facing challenges right now. But what was interesting is they really saw some opportunity, too. Not surprising, 97% of recipients of, of respondents cited COVID-19 and the economic downturn as a challenge. But three-quarters also said they saw this as an opportunity to really think about long-term change that wouldn't just allow them to weather these short-term challenges, but come out on the other side even stronger and, and ready for growth. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, one point, and you know, I hate to get too much into the numbers, but one point that I thought was of particular interest is 76% of law firm lawyers thought they were doing a really good job of addressing their clients' needs, and only 62% of in-house counsel thought that. Um, so I think for law firm lawyers, um, you know, hear that and recognize that you may need to really be having some strategic conversations with your clients um, and think about the innovative ways that they, you know, you can help them through this crisis and for the long term. Um, and, you know, that, that, in my view, should include, you know, discussing legal finance with them. And I think that's important. Um, as a, an aside, an interesting aside that I thought in our survey, two-thirds cited the benefits of remote work. Um, and that, that was of interest to me because I think that is still the unknown is once we get through this, will people return to the, the workplace or is the, you know, at least partly working from home a, a long-term thing? Um, the other interesting high-level point from the law firm side is the real challenges they saw were in business generation um, and in competition from other firms. And so, um, you know, law firms are really recognizing that they can't just be good lawyers. They really need to be bringing something else to the table for their corporate clients um, to make them a really trusted partner and someone that they can kind of move into um, the next phase of this as we move out of COVID and hopefully with a vaccine get back into a new normal. Um, and I think that's something that's that, um, while we've seen some of that is, is really somewhat new in, in the 2020 survey. Well, you've talked about these challenges. You've mentioned uh, general counsel. General counsel are so important, really the critically important people, I think, in making so many of these decisions because they're the ones that are asked for litigation budgets. They're the ones who give advice on whether ultimately to go forward on behalf of the client. Did you have special uh, readings or reports in the survey from general counsel that, that law firms should know about? Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, you know, it's an interesting point you raise here and, and I wanted to touch on is, um, you know, historically, a lot of our business has come through law firms who are coming to us on behalf of their clients. What we're seeing now is a shift in that and we're actually dealing directly with corporations, including general counsel, a lot. Um, and what's really interesting is the general counsel gets the, the legal side of it and they get the budget side of it and all that. But we're seeing more and more involvement from CFOs chief accounting officers, controllers, and the like, um, who really get the finance side of what we do. They understand the impact to their balance sheet. They understand the cash flow benefits. Um, and so, you know, that finance piece is coming in more and more. And I thought that was, you know, that was really interesting. Um, to your direct question, I, I think one interesting number we saw is 92% of the in-house counsel said that the most important thing to them was price certainty 
and budget predictability. Um, and so you know, they're facing huge cuts and they can no longer be in a position where they don't know what their pricing for a particular matter is going to be and that they're just going to write the checks and, and, you know, and that's good and, and they're not worried about it. Um, and, and sort of tie into what we've been talking here, 78% said they're likely or very likely to use commercial legal finance to mitigate the impact of the current crisis. And so I think, again, law firms need to understand that this is something that you know, in-house counsel want to hear from them. They want to know that law firm partners understand legal finance, understand what opportunities that can provide for their corporate clients, um, and that they're thinking about ways that they can help their corporate clients through this, this difficult period. My favorite story about budgeting, which is publicly reported, is that when Nicholas Katzenbach, this is well over uh, 40 years ago, who was attorney general, became general counsel at IBM. It was while the large antitrust lawsuit against IBM was going on. And so he had a first meeting with outside counsel among the firms with the Cravath firm. And they talked about budgeting and, and uh, uh, General Counsel Katzenbach, as part of his role, said, you know, they're trying to break up the firm. This is a better company case. We really can't uh, consider budgetary limitations, so do what has to be done. The next year, when they had their budgetary review, uh, Katzenbach started the meeting by saying, you know, this is the first time I've ever worked on anything that had no budget that went over budget. Um, the, the budgeting and, and the projection and prediction of budgeting in litigation has always been one of the great sources of, of, of potential tension between clients uh, and, and lawyers, uh, because there's talk about unpredictability and how do we know and what if we're faced with new things. One of the things Burford has to do, I, I take it, is really pay a great deal of attention to budgeting in terms of evaluating its own risk and what the result is going to be. So what, what kind of tensions do you come across, or do you, in terms of talking about the budgeting of the case? Because your decision on financing has to include some assumption about budgeting and costs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every case we require, you know, a pretty fulsome budget, um, recognizing that we're all former litigators that budgets don't necessarily hold, and we understand the twists and turns litigation can take. Um, what I found interesting when I moved into this industry, uh, two things. One, a lot of law firm partners are very bad at budgeting. Um, and two, they think that we want them to come to us with a very lean budget, um, which is actually, you know, somewhat the opposite. Surely we don't want people sort of padding their budget, but at the same time, we care about the outcome of the case. And so, you know, we want to hire the best experts and we want to, you know, depose all the people that need to be deposed to get the best information. And so we look for a very realistic budget. Um, we, you know, build in certain assumptions about the way cases may go and, you know, if this happens, then that and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, we really look to the law firms to have given it some really um, extensive thought of how much the case is going to cost, because obviously, as you say, it's directly tied to you know, both what we deploy and you know, ultimately our return. So the budgets are, are critically important. Do you ever get involved in the billing guidelines? I know that a great many uh, clients, especially among the larger and more sophisticated uh, general, counsel, uh, general counsels, uh, do impose billing guidelines such as, you know, no more than two attorneys at a deposition unless there's prior agreement, a uh, general amount of time that may be spent on various motions, asking that when the billing comes in, it's specifically a, a state who did the work, how much time so it can be compared, and all sorts of metrics have been devised for how much time particular tasks 
should take, and those are sometimes included in retainer agreements and in billing guidelines. As a funder, do you get involved in that at all? I would say generally no. Uh, you know, you start to at some point walk that line of, you know, are you trying to control too much of litigation? Um, you know, who the lawyers are is one of the most important factors in determining whether we fund a case. And so it really is, you know, a relationship of trust uh, that once we fund a case that um, the lawyers, um, you know, with, with direction from their client uh, are going to litigate the case in the best manner possible. Um, you know, obviously we see bills and we see what happens, but, um, you know, we are not the one kind of setting those parameters of how to, how to litigate the case. And in terms of, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm meant to ask this when we were talking about this, but in terms of return to you, when you do the financing of lawyers is, is or uh, on the case, is the return, uh, solely out of the legal fees that are obtained, or does it also include uh, some of what the substantive return to the client is? So it mostly depends on who the counterparty is. If we are doing a financing for a law firm, then yes, our returns come out of the, the fees. If the counterparty is the corporate client, then our return may come out of, you know, the, the proceeds that the client was, is receiving. Um, so it, you know, it really depends on, like, like anything, and it's a very I know lawyerly answer, but it depends. <laughs> it's usually the answer. Um, but generally speaking, you know, it depends on who the counterparty to the arrangement is and who's receiving our capital. And how do you deal, uh, now that we're talking about this, among the, the issues, one of the things uh, that people raised that we didn't mention when we talked about concern was potential conflicts. Do you uh, bound, are bound by the same conflict checks that a law firm would be bound by? in terms of what you financed? Uh, and and do, you, do you look at those potential conflicts and, and are constrained by them? So we are not a law firm. Uh, so we do not have the same conflict rules as a law firm would have. Having said that, we certainly have business conflicts. Um, we would not, certainly not fund on, on both sides of the, the same case. Um, and we certainly, you know, look to historically, you know, what, what kind of, um, Tension would be um, would result if we funded in a certain particular case, but but no, we don't have the same legal conflicts that a law firm would have. Again, we have now included expanded the discussion beyond the individual case uh, to the various issues, not just of portfolio financing, but of growth of the industry. Uh, and this is in the news. Litigation finance is in the news. Uh, you can read a great deal about it in the Daily Journal, uh, but the Daily Journal not only covers this, but covers a great many other news items for the legal profession as well. Let's take another break and hear about some of the other stories that the Daily Journal is now following and reporting on. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of December 7th. While the pandemic has created many challenges for law firms, leaders of virtual hybrid firms have said they've experienced growth opportunities during this time. San Francisco-based Ryman PC added 33 partners this year, and the growth shows no sign of stopping, with more additions expected by the end of the year. The firm's CEO said lateral candidates are interested in the hybrid model now that they've started working from home. Timothy Bowers, who is the managing partner of VLP Law Group, said they've hired seven lawyers since the end of August. He said people who may not have been open to the virtual model in the past are more willing to try it now. Recruiters say the hybrid model will work for some, but traditional law firms aren't going anywhere. 
With California Attorney General Xavier Becerra tapped to take a seat on Joe Biden's cabinet, dozens of names for his replacement started floating around the rumor mill. If confirmed, Becerra's departure would mark the third straight elected attorney general to leave for a more high-profile role. But that confirmation could be affected by the Senate runoff elections in Georgia. If the GOP maintains a majority, Becerra's serial litigation might give Senate Republicans a reason to reject him or block a vote on his nomination. Some attorneys say Gavin Newsom should wait to appoint a replacement. For now, it seems Becerra is still focused on battling Trump's government. Investors of rideshare giant Uber filed a securities class action lawsuit alleging the company chose not to address a pattern of sexual assault against riders. The lawsuit claims if the company had addressed the issue, more proactive safety and accountability protocols would have increased the likelihood Uber would have to classify its drivers as employees. Rideshare and other gig economy companies have fought AB5, which sought to change the practice of categorizing their drivers as independent contractors. Proposition 22 exempted Uber and others from reclassifying as employees. The lawsuit also claims Uber misled investors about safety issues and its business prospects prior to its initial public public offering, which was one of the most highly anticipated IPOs in recent history. In the second quarter of 2019, after its IPO, the company recorded a record $5.2 billion in losses. Investors claimed in the lawsuit the company has lost more money faster than any venture in history, and it might never be profitable. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back from our break, and what I'd like to do is talk about where the areas of growth are now. I I know I've seen there's enormous growth in particular areas. I've seen mention of international uh, arbitration, for example. Are there particular areas of litigation that you're seeing uh, great growth in uh, because of what's happening in the economy or for other reasons? So, you know, international arbitration, it's funny you should mention that. That is a perfect example of where funding makes sense. They're big cases. They take a long time. Um, typically, firms are not taking them on contingency. But if you think about it, that same rationale applies to a lot of big corporate commercial matters. Um, so I think you're going to see growth across um, a lot of different matters. Um, obviously, right now, we're seeing a ton of COVID-related, usually insurance-based litigation or you know refund litigation or the like. Um, and with any downturn, you're going to see large contract disputes, you're going to see Buffett merger litigation, you're going to see insolvencies and all the litigation that, that comes from that. And um, we're also seeing a big uptick in very large patent litigation uh, matters. Um, but I think even after the economic recovery, um, as far as financing goes, I think the genie's out of the bottle and we're going to see it in lots of different cases. I think you'll see a lot of growth in the U.S., um, but I also think you'll see geographic growth, um, parts of Asia continental Europe and Canada. Um, And so I think, you know, the growth has been exponential in what is basically the first decade of the industry. And I think you will continue to see that level of growth for probably another decade. Um, And then at some point, you know, the market will become much more mature. But I think we still have significant room for growth at this point. Well, one of the things that's amazing and that I think it's probably led to growth, and you might want to comment on it, is, you know, I can remember, we all can remember a time when a jury came in with a verdict of a million dollars. It was a large verdict. Ten million was a large verdict. Uh, A number of 40, 50 million dollars from a jury or a judge was considered large. It is now not unusual to read of results in cases where the recovery of the client is in the billions of dollars and the fees to the lawyers are in the tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. These are no longer 
headline things anymore. They are just regular reporting of what's happened. Have you seen the stakes, the size of potential rewards, uh, and the results come in at, at this much higher level than we've ever seen before? Yeah, we are seeing that. And, and as I mentioned earlier, our average funding size is over $10 million. Um, that's the funding size. So obviously, you know, think about usually rule of thumb for us is we want to see damages that are 10 times the requested funding amount. Um, so if we're putting $10 million out, the likely damages are around $100 million um, you know, in a single case. And again, that's a, a rule of thumb. But yes, that shows you that you know, we have multiple investments well north of $10 million. And so you're talking about cases that have hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. Um, and I think you'll see some of that you know, um, you know, in the aftermath of, of COVID where you've got you know, corporations that you know, maybe they had a deal that they were going into pre-COVID that has now fallen apart and, and there's just massive amounts of money at stake and, and same thing on the patent side. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think that's exactly what we're seeing. And, you know, at some point um, that may level off, but um, not so far. It's very important then to focus on the overall numbers. I mean, you're talking about your average size being 10 million that requires a potential recovery of 100 million. Uh, and you have $4 billion invested. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of assumptions and analysis that can be done, but when you, when you just think about those numbers, you realize that you are projecting or, or considering that the amount of damages to be recovered in litigation uh, is based on your portfolio uh, is in the tens of billions of dollars if, if you just do the, the back of the envelope math. And that indicates the stakes uh, that are there in the litigation system. And I would add uh, how, how it makes relevant how people get the, the, the resources uh, uh, to fund these cases, because uh, th there's no doubt that there are meritorious cases that struggle to find resources. And, and then you run into, when you hear about this and what you've done, you run into the criticism, you know, that the net result of litigation finance is to increase the amount of litigation. Uh, do you think that's true? Yeah, and so, you know, it's funny. I was about to jump in when, when you were talking to pick up on that point because I think it's an important one. I think this notion that litigation funding in litigation is a fallacy. Um, think about it. You know, it actually can reduce the number of weaker claims that get filed, um, but allowing meritorious claims to go forward. And, and hopefully no one thinks meritorious claims should not be allowed to be litigated. Um, but, you know, we have a really, really robust diligence process and underwriting process that a case goes through. Uh, and, and we've definitely had situations where counsel or the client kind of hears our analysis and says, oh, this isn't worth the time and the money and the effort to litigate, you know, what I'm probably going to lose on a motion to dismiss. Um, and so, you know, I, I just think that is a, a sort of myth out there that somehow it greatly increases litigation. And again, our, our fund is on recall. So we are not going to fund cases that are not very strong on the merits. Um, and so I think that's, in, that's important to understand. Um, and, and I think kind of adding to that, you know, when you have a litigation funder who is very experienced and is looking at your cases, um, you know, it can really add sort of a neutral set of eyes uh, to help understand your case and where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. Um, and I normally don't like to read a quote, but I want to read this one because as part of our research, a partner at an AMLAW 100 firm said, and I quote, legal finance partners help the legal team see around the corners and offer an independent third-party perspective. 
The funder also provides a validation of the merit of the claim. Conversely, the vetting process could identify weaknesses. That second set of eyes would be very valuable. End of quote. And I'm not that. That is a partner at an AMLAW 100 law firm. And, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. One of the ways to realize this is to uh, do a thought hypothetical. Imagine that you're a general counsel uh, in a significant corporation. And there's an issue about whether a case ought to be brought. Uh, perhaps your regular counsel may be discussing it. Perhaps a new counsel may be talking about it. But you're looking at an expenditure, let's say, of the, of the $10 million dollar. Uh, magnitude uh, to bring the case forward. Uh, would you, as a general counsel, uh, is it helpful to have available a third-party source uh, that is experienced, uh, that not only will review the matter, but whose judgment is backed up by a decision to invest, to risk money? So that the general counsel might say to him or herself, you know, it's one thing to get an evaluation generally. It's another thing to get an evaluation from experienced people uh, who are telling us it's not, they are not, they do not consider this a valuable or, or a, the kind of investment that they would make. And so when you have that kind of third party evaluation, there undoubtedly have been cases where litigation otherwise would have gone forward where it now does not because this independent third-party valuation by someone who, as you've said in the another phrase, will have skin in the game to back up their judgment, controls the judgment about whether to go forward. So I think that's an important perspective in talking about what is happening here. And there's one other thing I, I want to talk about before we finish up. We've been talking about financing plaintiff's cases. Is, is, there, a, is there an issue here for whether defendants who may face a large claim and large legal fees, are there, are there ways they could also obtain uh, 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 these, this kind of litigation financing? Yeah, so I think a lot of people are surprised to hear us say yes. In fact, we, we can do funding for defense side cases. Now, obviously, the, the obvious one is they have a counterclaim, um, and we treat that much as we would a, a plaintiff side case. Um, the other easy way is as part of a portfolio. As I mentioned, if you have a whole bunch of of cases, um, we can provide capital against you know both the plaintiff side cases, defense side cases, and do what you want with the money. Um, but even on a pure defense case, um, it's really a matter of sort of predefining what is success, um, and that may be you know time based. You, you you were dismissed on a motion to dismiss, or you won summary judgment. Um, it can be you know monetary based, so it can be you're exposed at 100 million and ultimately are able to settle it for five or 10 million. Um, admittedly, it, it can be a little tricky to come up with those defined measures of success and, and document that and, and all of that, but we we certainly can do it. And you're you're seeing law firms do that as well, where they um, are taking cases on what looks like an alternative fee arrangement on the defense side, using some measure of success as the barometer, and so. You know, the one benefit of Burford's scale and experience is that we can be very creative in coming up with solutions. Um, and, and, you know, one example, which I think is interesting, is um, we have been able to, um, you know, structure it so that if, um, for instance, you're def on the defense side of a patent case, um, we can actually get our recovery out of the future revenue stream of a patent that is successfully defended. Um, and so... Um, there are creative ways to make it work uh, if a client you know, is interested and um, open to kind of suggestions about how we can make it happen. 
And that answer really leads us to our general and conclusion. It's a very important part of this discussion uh, that lawyers and people involved in the legal industry uh, are beginning to realize more and more. Litigation is not simply about who will win on argument or matters of law. Litigation is an aspect of finance, and that's why the, uh, the finance people at companies are getting involved in these decisions as well. It, it involves around allocations of the risk of financial harms or financial recoveries. And just as those risks can be evaluated on the plaintiff side, they also now are starting to be evaluated on the defendant side. Because the essence of thinking about whether to move forward with litigation based on an estimated recovery, whether to defend, what the risks are, is a finance risk analysis. And the litigation finance industry, Burford Capital, has helped to bring that understanding of the need for that analysis to all matters in our litigation system. Christine, we're very grateful. Thank you so much. Christine is our director of Burford Capital for joining us, spending this hour with us. We've really been honored to have you take the time to do this. And thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Howard. I enjoyed it.